Well, good morning again, and welcome to One Life Community Church. My name is Greg. I'm one of the co-lead pastors here, and I just want to say one more time that we are excited and happy and stoked and all the good-feeling words you can think of that you are here with us in whatever way you can be uh, this morning. I do want to, um, before we get started, um, just as I was standing in the hallway there for a second and singing along, um, you know, as we go through the Bible, lots of times we, we really try to hone in on, um, you know, what was the, the writer of this particular text saying? And, and we're going to be doing that today, and it's super important, but um, I also felt like uh, it was really important, just as we sang, I need a reason to sing. Uh, is, is there a melody? Is something I can hang on to? Is there something? And I just was thinking about the Galatian people that the letter we're looking at was going to and what they were dealing with and what they were going through and how, you know, they may have felt like, hey, we got Paul on this side saying this thing and this other group saying this other thing, and we just feel like we are being thrown around in the midst of this. And I don't know if you've ever had that feeling where somebody says something and it kind of digs into you and it feels like it starts to undo things you've believed in really, really sternly. Um, but I think that's what they're going through, and I, and I just was struck. I think it's really important for us to remember that, too, right? As we're hearing these things that uh, not only do we need to know what Paul was saying, but I think it's important to be able to get in sort of the shoes of the people that he's writing to also. And so, um, yeah, so just take that for whatever it's worth, and uh, yeah, let's pray, and then we'll, we'll jump into what we have for this morning. God, I am, uh, I'm just glad that we can gather Lord, and, and, and whether that's being present together, which I'm excited for, or being able to still be able to connect remotely, which I'm excited for, um, God, I'm, I am thankful that you have just provided uh, ways for us to still be together. Um, and so I pray as we move into whatever things are next, we never lose that, God, that, that importance of being able to be together and, and make it work and, and the things we've done um, God, and you have just provided in all of that, and so I give you great thanks for just being able to be here this morning, that we can say, by your grace, here we have come, uh, and so I lift up your name this morning and ask that you be with us, and that we just be mindful of your presence here. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are about halfway through our summer sermon series. I say that slowly because every time I try to say it quickly, I just jumble it all up. Um, but it's called Gospel Culture, and we're doing this exploration of the book of Galatians, this letter uh, that was written to some people in uh, the area that we would now call Southern Turkey. Uh, and, uh, and so it's dealing with some of the stuff that they're um, dealing with. Um, but, but we called it Gospel Culture because the person who wrote it, this person named Paul, is tenaciously defending the gospel. And, and one of the great things that I think we get to see in this letter is not only he doing that through his words, but as we are going to see today, through his actions too. His life is showing that also, that he demonstrates what it looks like to live out this gospel that he has been so impacted by, that really everything Paul does centers on this moment that really reoriented his whole reality. I want to take a moment and just kind of recap a couple of things about Paul that I think will be helpful for us to have uh, in our hearts and minds as we go through this. Uh, first up is that Paul is the author of the letter to the Galatians, these churches that I mentioned in this region we know as southern Turkey. And he went on a, a missionary journey, his first one, and he went along 
kind of covered the north, uh, northeastern side of the, the Mediterranean up there. Uh, and this was one of the areas he went through. And so he's writing this letter back to some of those people uh, that he met on that trip. Paul was not always known as Paul. Um, he was, uh, his name was originally Saul, and he was from a place called Tarsus. Um, and uh, Saul was a Pharisee. Now, if you remember, uh, the Pharisees are one of the main groups who are really bent against Jesus. As we read in the Gospels, and we can feel the tension building between the Pharisees and Jesus as they sort of shift from this position of being, well, we're kind of angry and frustrated with you, to oh, we're kind of, we got to stop you, to we have to kill you, to, and now we're participating in that process of having you killed, right? And so there's this big shift for them, and Saul is not only uh, a part of that group, but he is... Uh, fairly high up in that group, and he is actively involved in persecuting the followers of Jesus. In the book of Acts, we read that he is uh, attending uh, the execution of one of the early leaders in the church named Stephen, Uh, and then right after that, we read that Paul actually goes to the high priest and asks for special permission to go into towns and to find Christ's followers and have them um, arrested and, uh, and beaten and all kinds of things. And so Paul's pretty bent against this. Um, but he has this encounter with the resurrected Christ that's pretty dramatic. Um, he gets blinded uh, and then is, is later healed uh, by someone who, who puts their hands on his eyes and it says these things like scales fell off of his eyes. And then uh, after that, his life is really uh, dramatically transformed and he goes on not to just be a follower of Jesus, but one of the most uh, prominent and influential leaders in the early church. And I think it's amazing to have this transformation with us as we enter into any of Paul's writings. I think it, uh, it, it just helps us to kind of know uh, where he's coming from. Now, I mentioned the Pharisees, and one of the things I want to tell you about the Pharisees that we need to remember is how important this thing called the law was. They talk about the law a lot and keeping the law, but I want you to know why it's so important to them. Uh, first of all, though, the law or the Torah is the first five books of the Old Testament, and to the Pharisees, they're a group that arose out of this really interesting time in uh, Israel's history when, uh, so they, they were under the oppression of this Greek city-state called the Seleucids, and this group was doing all kinds of terrible things in the temple. They would bring in, like, pigs and slaughter them on the altar, like things that would just defile the temple. And so uh, in Israel, there arose this group, um, and they were, they were called the Zealots, and, and they were led uh, they led this thing called the Maccabean Revolution, this Maccabean Revolt, where they went in and they retook um, the, the temple back. And uh, out of that rose this dynasty, this, this Hasmonean was the name, uh, uh, dynasty that ruled uh, after that for, for quite a while. But in the process of that, as they started getting power and they, they won some victories and things like that, they started getting really political and, and very corrupt. And so there's this group that said, you know what, you, you leaders now are drifting from the Torah, and we need to reestablish that for the people. We need to get that back on track. And so that's how the, the group known as the Pharisees kind of got their start, was they saw the leaders of Israel, uh, they were drifting, and so they wanted to get it back on track. And so it, it was super important to them. It was their national identity. It was the way that they showed that they were different, not only from those leaders, but the other religions and nations around them. It was their national identity. It shaped everything they did. And I think most of all, it became the way they expressed themselves as God's chosen people. 
And so we can see that this isn't just a, it's really important to follow some rules. This has a lot to do with who they are, who they've been, things they've seen in, in, their, in their nation going wrong and how they were trying to correct that. And in doing so, they put a heavy focus on the law that I think got them off track. And we find that this is actually the occasion for this letter that Paul is writing because there were some people who had come to Galatia where he had started these churches and they're saying to this group of Gentile Christians, and remember Gentiles are non-Jews, this group of Gentile Christians that in order for you to really be Christians, in order for you to really be like connected with God, you got to get back to this Torah thing. You've got to follow and be obedient to the law. And specifically, uh, the rites of circumcision and food and purity laws that included uh, not eating with Gentiles because one of the things in the law was that Gentiles were unclean specifically because they had so many idols they worshipped. And so if you associated with them, then you became unclean in that. And so there was this thing you can't really associate with Gentiles. And so they're saying to this Gentile group, look, you can be in the family, but you got to do these things. So that's where Paul is coming at. And so this uh, last week, Rich helped us look at the beginning of chapter 3, which chapter 3, right in the middle of Galatians, and is this big pivotal point. Um, And uh, it's also really what I'm going to call the full meal deal in terms of Paul's theology. Uh, And so Rich led us again through the first half of chapter 3 last week. We're looking at the second half this week. And just to give you a sense of of the the, kind of the, the breadth of this, scholar and theologian Scott McKnight says, this is the most important passage in the letter to the Galatians for understanding the nature of Paul's theological arguments. In fact, it is one of the most important passages in all of Paul's letters when it comes to understanding the relationship of Christianity to the law of Moses. And then scholar N.T. Wright also notes that Paul here is wrestling with one of the biggest and toughest issues in his whole theology. And so I think we can see this has a little bit of oomph to it. Now, if you have your Bible, you can open up to Galatians 3. We're going to be reading uh, verses 15 through 29. If you don't have it, they'll be up on the screen or on your screen at home. uh, Or you can hit the Bible tab in our online platform. Or you can just listen along as I read. But we're going to be looking at, again, Galatians 3, 15 through 29. It says this, Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Well, why then was the law given at all? But it was added because of the transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin, so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. 
Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Paul has a sense of urgency in this. He's aware of what the rival teachers are saying and the impact that this can have on these friends of his in Galatia. Now, in the first half of Galatians that we went through last week, we started hearing a lot about this person, Abraham. And if you don't know who Abraham is, he's one of the heroes of our faith. He's one of the heroes of the Old Testament. He's actually a very foundational person, not only in Christianity, but in Judaism and in Islam. And he's way back in the beginning of the Bible, in the very first book called Genesis. And we, there we read a lot about Abraham. But one of the key things is that Abraham received this promise from God. God made this covenant with Abraham that the promise was that God would bless the nations through Abraham and his descendants and that his descendants would be more numerous than the grains of sand on the shore or the stars in the sky. And it's really one of the key moments in the Old Testament. In fact, Old Testament professor and scholar Ian Proven would say that as you read through the narrative of the Old Testament, as you follow the story the original audience and the people who were experiencing it, living it, they would have had one question as they went through it. And that's, what's the status of the covenant? What's happening with the promise? How, how are we with that? Where are we with that? Is it, is it still happening? Seems like things are really bad. Maybe it's not happening. Seems like things are good. Maybe it is happening. And so no matter where you were at, whether it was during the reign of David or times in exile, whether times of great celebration of freedom or times of oppression and captivity, no matter what the situation, one of the key questions was not how are we doing with the law, but how are things going with the promise? Are we moving any closer to seeing Israel become this nation that is going to be a blessing to all other nations? And so Paul's been trying to establish this argument that since Jesus showed up, something happened. And that something is that God launched this rescue of humanity from the present evil age into the kingdom of God that is here and now. And he's been trying to relate underneath that. He's got this sort of underlying thing that goes back to to where we first started where he says, God revealed Christ in me. Right? And and so that's going to be underlying all of this. But he's trying to build something here and he's going back to this promise and Paul says if we look at a human contract once it's a done deal once it's all been signed everyone's agreed then then no one goes back and changes it now I read this and felt like I don't know if they thought about contracts the same way I do now right when I hear about athletes contracts and other things I feel like even once it's signed there are lots of work that still gets done. But I think in its most ideal form, a contract does look like this, that once everyone's done everything they need to do, no one goes back and changes it. And Paul says that these promises spoken to Abraham were just like this. And so his line of thought is that if the promises were first, and there was a covenant with God and Abraham, this contract, then the law cannot work against that. It's either got to serve it, expand it, fulfill it, but it's got to be in line with it. Now, Paul has this moment 
He's talking about Abraham's seed and he's referring back to the promise of Abraham's descendants would be more numerous and be a blessing to all nations. And the Greek word here that is translated seed has this interesting sort of spin on it that it's, it's not just talking about like the ability to, to reproduce and have kids. And it's not even just talking about like immediate family or extended family, but it's talking about all of that and your whole ancestral line. And so it ties into the family tree. And so in this, Paul is saying that God did not promise to make multiple families that were going to be this blessing. God promised one family that could be made up of all kinds of people but brought together as one. Not like getting rid of some of the things that make them different but bringing them together and having them still be able to be one with those things that are different. And that this family is gathered up in Jesus That Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this promise that was given to Abraham. And if we're in Christ, then what Paul says is at the end of this passage that we are one family in Christ. And I want to unpack that a bit because Paul's got some challenges and some steps to go through. He's going to challenge the assertion made by the rival teachers that the Torah must be followed. Right? That if you're going to really be a Christian, you've got to follow the Torah. And he's going to challenge that. He's going to say that this inheritance, this new life in Jesus, this flourishing in God's presence, or a life lived in the Spirit of God, if all that is based on the law, then our obedience, in our obedience to the law, then it would nullify the promise given to Abraham. And Paul's very clear that's not how it works. And he's anticipating pushback. I don't know if you've ever had this where you're in a discussion with someone and you feel, you kind of know ahead of time what some questions back are going to be, so you try to answer those as you're going and Paul does that because one of the questions that should come up is well if the law wasn't given so that through its obedience we can be accepted by God then why give it at all what's the point of the law and Paul says well the law was added which I think is a very uh, significant phrase he didn't say it was given he says it was added right it means that something was already here the promise and then something was added something was put into that not to overrule it or get rid of it but to work with it And so he says it was given because of transgressions, that humanity needed to both be aware that we were transgressing against God in our actions, but we needed to know how that was happening and have some sort of guide to help us stay on the right path. I've been having discussions with my my kids recently that as they get older and as I get older, um, my role changes where it used to be like we might be walking down the street holding hands trying to keep everybody on the right path and then it shifts a little bit to now it feels more like I'm a, I'm a, I'm a guardrail, right? Where they're just going to bang into me as they start testing the boundaries and pushing things and my job is not necessarily to, you know, just tell them what they have to do but I got to be there that they can bounce against and stay on the right track a little bit. And so Paul is saying the law has this kind of feel to it. But then the question is, well, so, so okay, so say we agree with that, that, that the law wasn't working against the promise or, or wasn't, you know, going to nullify it, but, but then how does it work with it? And Paul says, well, it's not contrary, but what you're asking is you're asking the law to do something that it can't. You're asking it to give life. And he says that's not what it's for. In verse 22, I find fascinating. Uh, He says, but the scripture has confined everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus might be given to those who believe. 
And when I first read that, I was like, the scripture is confined. Ugh, I didn't like that. Uh, but then as I started reading it, I have to remember, when Paul says scripture, he doesn't mean the Bible like we have it. He means the Torah. He means the, old, the, the first five books. That was the law. That was their Bible. That was, when he says scripture, that's what he means. And so he's saying that the Torah has confined everyone. And he's saying that the Torah's God-given purpose was to confine humanity who was under sin and to act as a sort of guardrail to keep the people of God on the road, enough to get to a spot where the promise could be fulfilled. And it's fulfilled by Jesus. And it's it's interesting because it's got this word in their faith, that it's fulfilled by faith in Jesus. And this word is pistis, and it denotes both this idea that Jesus is faithful Right? And Jesus' faith is, is, is what has enabled this promise to be, to be fulfilled. But it's also the faith that we find in Jesus. That we can respond faithfully to Jesus because of his faithfulness. That we find if Christ is in us, then that faithfulness dwells in us. And so Paul continues to describe now what it's like then to be under that with those guardrails. And he says, um, before faith came, this faithfulness that I just mentioned in Jesus, um, we were kept in custody under the law being shut up to the faith which was later revealed. Therefore, the law became our tutor, is one of the phrases, or our teacher, or our guardian, to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. And I want to look at that word there that is described as tutor or guardian or uh, the King James, I think, says schoolmaster. Um, And it captures a part of it, but the the Greek word there is actually pedagogos, and it's the word used. um, You would have these rich families that would have, uh, they would own slaves, and one of those slaves would be charged with taking their kids uh, and making sure that their kids didn't go off the rails. Right? They'd be kind of overseeing them. And that was this pedagogos, was that role. And so um, the, this person uh, was really more, uh, N.T. Wright says they're more like a nanny or a babysitter. And then I was like, oh, so does that mean that the law was like our babysitter? Oh, that's an interesting concept to think about. And I think, it, I think it's true. Now, one of the problems with that then is people ask, well, so... Did God just not pick a good babysitter? Like, it didn't seem to help that much. Like, Israel kept getting off track. Uh, And so, to explore this, I went to another uh, very famous uh, theologian named Bill Watterson, uh, who, if you're familiar, he uh, is responsible for Calvin and Hobbes. And this is one, uh, and I'm not going to read the whole thing. You can read it. I'm just going to give you the gist. Uh, Calvin is being babysat by Rosalind, and he is scared. He hears something scary outside, and he convinces Rosalind to go check. And then you can see in the corner, he's like, two more steps. Yes, go, go, go. So she gets out, says, oh, there's nothing out here. And then he slams the door on her, right? And then he's like, oh, now Hobbes and I, we're going to go eat cookies and watch TV, do all the stuff we're not supposed to be. And Hobbes yells, this is the best we've ever been babysat. She's yelling outside. And at the end, uh, Calvin is on the phone with her boyfriend saying, I think you, you're settling in the girlfriend department. And you, need to, you need to upgrade. Um, and then in the last one, he's uh, sitting watching TV, hear the door slam, Rosal's in, inside, and now he realizes, wait, how did you get in? And then his parents are there too. He just simply forgot 
that his parents were eventually going to be coming home. But I think what the great theologian Bill Watterson shows us there is that it wasn't the babysitter. It was the material that the babysitter was working with, right? And that it wasn't that the problem was the babysitter. It was that the problem was humanity, right? We just keep going astray. And so the law was there not to, to, to necessarily make us perfect, but it was there just, just stay on the road. Because we have a tendency to get off track. And that they needed, God needed something to keep us on the road until Jesus was going to be able to be here and be present with us. And then it changed. And this faith was able to, to be born. And now that this faith has come, Paul says, we're no longer under the guardian. Meaning that because Jesus has come and fulfilled the law, we now look to Jesus. We look to the Holy Spirit as our guide. We don't look to the law like the old the people of the Old Testament did. And that this new single family is marked by this transition. They're marked by this faith and this faithfulness. Okay, I have a quick aside here that I want you to know. This is one of those moments where we're going to see how Paul lives this out because Paul is also teaching us how to read the Bible here. Because if we stop here, and lots of people have, if we stop in this spot, then we might get this idea that this whole section, and then really, really the, the whole gist of what Paul is trying to say is that it's faith versus works. And lots of people have talked about this, right? And we get to this space where we're justified by our faith. And if we stop there, though, we end up getting to this spot where we think, well, so then if I believe, what I do isn't really the important thing, but it's that I believe. And sadly, and, and harmfully, in a lot of ways, this has led to a lot of people doing things that they shouldn't have done and then saying, well, at least I believe, right? That's okay. This can be forgiven. That's, it's okay. I believe. And I think it's ended up being sort of a backdoor excuse for a lot of followers of Jesus to do things that they shouldn't have and think that they can get sort of off the hook. But what Paul is saying is to say, no, no, see, if you end up there, that's not the spot where you need to be. We have to look at this bigger picture. And so I'm going to, let's go back a little bit further. Yeah, Moses, the law, that was all important. But if we go back a little bit further, do you notice that spot? There's that Abraham guy and there's that promise. That actually seems really important. That actually seems like it means something. So let's, let's go there for a minute. And he shows us how to look at a bigger picture. He shows us how to fit things into context. And that changes how we look at this passage. So Paul is letting the story of God drive his theology. He's not just picking a verse here and saying, oh, I'm going to take this and make it mean what I want it to. He's like looking at the whole thing and saying, no, that thing back there impacts this and this and this, and I'm trying to get this whole thing figured out. So just a little thing there about how Paul engages with Scripture. I think it's super helpful for us. Um, So, and I do that too because a lot of people have argued that really Paul's main point in this letter is that it's faith versus works, right? That it's more important that we believe than than following rules, right? And, and, And I think that's important, but it's important because it was causing, it was a situation that was causing something in the place that he is very concerned about. It's, it's causing this division. And so in verses 26 through 29, Paul's going to get to this. 
He says, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And that is Paul's big point, I think, in all of this. That this one promised family of God is the expression of the kingdom of God being lived out in our day-to-day lives. That the reality that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus launched this new era, this new kingdom that rescues humanity from the present evil age that is steeped in division, steeped in dehumanizing competition, and steeped in the desire for people to rule over and dominate one another. And that in Jesus, There's the inauguration of this movement, this new kingdom, where all those divisions that humanity has put into place where we're trying to gain power over one another are countered and shown to be evil. And in the one family that is promised to Abraham, that's supposed to be a blessing to all the nations, that that is how we are to live. And that's what Paul's really after here. It isn't just justification by faith. As important as that is, it's brought up because it is causing that division that Paul is saying that division can't exist. Paul's saying that the one family of God, united in Christ, stands in the face of human divisions of racial inequality, gender inequality, and socioeconomic socioeconomic equality, and it shows a different way to live and to be. And he ends this section by stating that if you belong to Christ, if Christ is in you, going back to that very beginning, Christ in me thing, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And so then we look back at when Paul's talking about that seed and all of a sudden we realize we are part of that. And that's what the Galatians needed to hear, that they as Galatians, not being Jewish in ethnicity or practice, are fully part of the one family of God promised to Abraham, a place where the Torah's requirements are no longer keeping us under their watch as we now have the Holy Spirit and our relationship with God in Christ. And so what this all means, I think, and a place that's a good place to land on is in another letter that Paul wrote, 2 Corinthians 5, this is verses 14 through 21, where he says, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. We are, therefore, Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us, and we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, a divided point of view, a perspective based on the systems and values of a world bent on power and superiority. I even think about, you know, we've been 
struggling with what to do as a church, right, in terms of restrictions, right, COVID restrictions and, and this variant and that and all these things. And one of the things that we really solidly, I felt like, landed on as an elder board was that, uh, you know, our kids are wearing masks. And I, sorry, this really gets to me. There's something important, I think, about saying, you know what, we're with you in this, right? We don't have to have the masks on up here. I think there's lots of people who would say that, and there might be science to support that, but do we understand it's not just about science. It's about one family together, thriving, flourishing, and what we're saying to our kids is, you know what, you got to do it, we're going to do it too. And maybe we'll do it the whole way through until you don't have to. We're trying to figure that out. But for right now, we stand with you. Don't worry about it. You don't have to feel the weirdness of knowing upstairs that they're not, you know, doing mass and downstairs. Where I don't even know if they know. But for us, it was so important to remember that this is one family. And we don't have to make it extra difficult on them. We usually end our time with some questions. And so I'm going to invite the worship team back up. I have a couple of questions, then I'm going to pray. We'll have an instrumental time to reflect and ponder uh, and respond. Any of the questions I ask in just a second, you can write up uh, on your digital uh, connection card um, or email us or text us. You've got, I think you've got connection cards on your seat, so if there's a pen around, you can write them on there and leave them on the seat, and we'll get back to them. I also want you to know that the prayer team is going to be available for you if you want to pray, um, be prayed with. Uh, I, I just wonder every week why when we announce that, um, and this isn't like a necessarily a challenge or a confrontation, it just, I'm always interested that we offer prayer, and I know I need prayer like every day in lots of ways, and so you've got people to pray with you. So if you have anything in you at all that you're like, oh, I could use prayer, that's what we're here for is to pray. So please, please take advantage of that. Um, my questions today uh, tie back into some of the questions that the Old Testament people would have asked. I want us to, to ask ourselves, what's the status of the promise? Right? Does it, does it feel like it's, you know, it's, we say it's been fulfilled in Christ and we are this one family? Do we, do we feel like that's going? Right? What does the world see? Number two, when it looks at the church in terms of the one family of God. I think that's one of the ways that we were supposed to be a blessing and are supposed to be a blessing is when people look, they can see a place where the things, the the systems of the world don't operate. And they go, oh, I could be part of that. How is that going? Three, what part have you played in facilitating the answers to the two previous questions? Right, so however you answered those, how have you been participating in living out that promise? And then fourth, are there any changes you sense the Holy Spirit might be inviting you to in response to how you answered the three previous questions? You feel an invitation to do something different, to do something more, to stay just where you're at. Whatever it is, um, you could write that down. So I'm going to pray, and then again we'll have a moment of, of reflection Uh, And then we'll close with a song and a benediction. Dear Jesus, I am so thankful today for your presence with us that as we talk about this and we, I think, 
sort of get a better understanding for what you're about. Holy Spirit, I pray you would move and help us to see this even more clearly. Because I know that there are lots of things beyond what we've talked about today that this impacts. There are lots of relationships out there that are broken, lots of people who are hurting, and lots of people, including us. And we're looking for a place where some of the rules and systems and things that are in place because of the world or because of the church at times, we're looking for a, 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 that one family where those things don't kind of run the shop. So I pray, Holy Spirit, you would show us how to be that. Show us ways we can grow and change and, and help be part of that one family. Yeah, and so Lord, I ask you would come and build here, right? Stir in us, move in us. Help us to know how to take next steps to fulfill the things that you've called us to. I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.